Welcome to the weekly podcast for City Chapel at Slaughter Creek, the world's okayest church, right here in Austin. Get to know us better at citychapelchurch.com. We're so glad that you joined us today and hope you enjoy the message. I want to start a sermon series today. Pete, let's not put the screen up just yet, but I want to start a sermon series. We're going to read the scripture first before we announce the sermon title. Um, Let's go to Psalm 142, and we're going to read from Psalm 142. If you don't have a Bible, we have it up here on the giant screen. Um, Giant Bible right up here. This has been a psalm that has just ministered to me so many times in my life. I don't remember the first time I read it, but I know as soon as I read it, it resonated with me. And there's just certain scriptures like that. And Psalm 142 is one of those. Uh, and I, we're going to be reading a lot over the, over the coming um, weeks. Uh, this is our sermon series for the month of November. And um, you'll, see, you'll see why here in a minute. But let's just get started. Before verse 1, there's a description. See that? There's a, a small little description. This happens a lot of times in different psalms, little descriptions before the actual scripture begins. And the description, though, is very helpful in this particular instance. It says that it is a machil of David. Um, that's Hebrew for maskil mas- would be the English way to say that. It's a maskil. Uh, 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 I can't say maskil. It's a machil of David. And a machil is a didactic poem. In other words, it's a poem specifically meant to instruct. It's for your learning. Uh, we don't do a lot of didactic poems anymore. The 20th century sort of killed us off. Most of our poems are just expression for expression's sake. We see value in simply expressing oneself. Um, back 2,000, 5,000 years ago when this thing was written, uh, didactic poems were far more common because you would memorize it and it would teach you something. So one of the last remaining English didactic poems that I'm aware of, it starts off like this. It says, 30 days, half September, April, June, and... February stands alone with 28 to believe you're going to 29. <laughs> exactly. It's, a, it's one of those poems that if you're wondering how many days are in the month of November, 30 days have September, April, June, and there's 30 days in November. It, it, you, 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 you memorize it, and then it's helpful, because there you have a question at some point, and you're like, man, what, how many days? Are, and you memorize this poem, and it, and it helps teach you something. Well, that's what this is. Psalm 142 is eight verses long. It's not long. It's very short, but it's intended to be memorized because there's going to come times in your life when you have some questions. And you're going to have some questions, and God wants you to memorize this so that you have an answer. Just like 30 days has September, you, you can have, this has so many answers jam-packed into this psalm. And yet it doesn't hide the question. It doesn't hide the reality. And I, I just love that about, about God, about Scripture. But verse 1 says, uh, I cry aloud to the Lord. I lift up my voice to the Lord for mercy. Verse 2, I pour out before him my complaint. Wait a minute, I didn't know you were allowed to do that in church. <laughs> I pour out before him my complaint. Before him I tell my trouble. One to verse 3. When my spirit grows faint within me, it is you, God, it is you who watch over my way. In the path where I walk, people have hidden a snare for me. So he says in verse 4, look. Now he's setting up the situation here. And now he says, look. He's telling God, look and see. There is no one at my right hand. 
no one is concerned for me. I have no refuge. Hmm. No one cares for my life. Going on to verse 5, he says, so I cry. That's, that's, that's going to be a big part of this sermon series. Because you're not supposed to do that in church, right? You're not supposed to cry. You're not supposed to... Spiritual people don't cry. Spiritual people don't complain. Spiritual people don't say this kind of stuff. But this is the Word of God. This is a didactic poem. You're supposed to memorize this. So when you have questions, you get this in your spirit. Let it sink down deep. He, after, after, after complaining, after sharing what's going on, he, this is the fulcrum, actually, of this passage. This is the, the thing, the shift that happens because he goes from verse 4 to verse 5. I cry to you, Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Listen to my cry. For I am in desperate need. Rescue me from those who pursue me, for they are too strong. In a few weeks, I'm going to talk about the stuff that's too strong for me. Set me free, he says, from my prison, that I may praise your name. Then the righteous will gather about me because of your goodness to me. Let's read that one more time, just so it can sink into your spirit a little bit. Go, go on back to verse 1. The, 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 the description is this is the Machil of David when he was in the cave. It's a prayer. He says in verse 1, I cry aloud to the Lord. I lift up my voice to the Lord for mercy. I pour out before him my complaint. Before him I tell my trouble. When my spirit grows faint within me, it is you who watch over my way. In the path where I walk, this is crazy. God's watching over his way, and yet God is watching people in the path where he walks, and they are hiding snares for me. God sees this. And so he says, look and see. Not only is the path treacherous, not only are the people out to destroy me, but look and see, there's no one at my right hand. The right hand is the place where you, you lean on something. It doesn't mean that there's nobody around him. It's just there's nobody he can lean on. You can be lonely in the middle of a crowded room. He says, look and see, there is no one at my right hand. No one is concerned for me. I have no refuge. No one cares for my life. And so in verse 5, he says, I cry to you, Lord. I say that you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Listen to my cry, for I am in desperate need. Rescue me from those who pursue me, for they are too strong set me free from my prison. Isn't that interesting? He describes it as a prison. <laughs> Get to that in a second. Set me free from my prison that I may praise your name. Then the righteous will gather about me because of your goodness to me. The sermon series that I want to talk to you about, my assignment from the Lord I feel to share with you, is really found not really in in this passage, it's found in the description. So if we go back to verse 1, you'll see the description of the passage is that this is a maskil of David when he was in the cave. So I want to talk to you over the next four weeks about songs from the cave. Songs from the cave. Because there are some songs that you cannot write anywhere else. There are some songs that, that you can only write in a cave. 
There are some, and I, and I know not all of you are songwriters, so I'm not talking about specific songs. I'm talking about there's some prayers you'll never pray in a cathedral. You only pray in a cave. There's some lyrics that you won't write on your MacBook. They'll be scrawled on the wall of an abandoned cave. There's some things that you won't be able to illuminate by the light of the stage, people looking at you and appreciating you. There's some stuff you only figure out in the dim candlelight in the back of the cave. And so I want to talk to you about that because I think for City Chapel, many of us, over the past little while, we've been dealing with grief, we've dealing with a lot of loss. And, and the, the Texas reaction to grief is not good. It is, uh, get over it. It is, uh, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. It is, haven't, can't you just deal with that and move on? Can't you just figure that out? I mean, the, the, the response, the American response to grief is not good. Even, even our whole funeral system is designed to quickly, as quickly as possible, Remove the symbol of loss so that we can apparently get back to normal life. But it's not normal. There's no, there's no normal after loss. What I love about this is that David is writing this passage, and, and he tells us before he even gets into the, the spiritual depth of it, he just gives us the context of it. And he says, by the way, this is what I wrote when I was in the cave. What cave? The cave of Adullam. The cave when he was running from, from Saul. Saul's trying to kill him, and he's hiding. And he goes to a cave, and we'll get to that story next week. But, but David escapes, he hides to a cave. He, he's hiding for his life. He's using it as a place of shelter. He's using it as a shelter against the elements, against the wild animals out there, but also against the wild guy who's hunting him down to kill him. And while he is in the cave, this prayer comes out. There's some stuff, man, that only comes out of a cave. He had been in a palace. He had been, been out in the field worshiping God. There are many psalms that David wrote that are just beautiful, amazing about the greatness of God and the goodness of God. And yet, no psalm has ever spoken to me quite as deeply as this particular psalm. Because this seems to be where I am. This seems to be real. This seems to be honest. Not that the others are dishonest, but they're just, they're just not focused down here. They're all talking about how great God is. But yeah, that's lovely. And you can see him when you're in the field. But when you go in a cave, you just look up and there's more cave. And you look over and there's more cave. And you look back, there's more cave. And you look around and all you can see is cave. And David is, is he, he's, he, he has no one, but he's not really alone. The Bible tells us that 400 men came to his aid to live with him in the cave. He got 400 stinky dudes crammed into this cave without deodorants or bathrooms. And so he, he's not alone as such. There, there's, he has literally four times as many people as are in this room right here, all living community in the cave, ready to fight. And you can be surrounded by people and yet be completely alone. You can be surrounded by people because the issue is not who is like physically present, but who actually knows what you're going through. 
That's what David says. Nobody knows what I'm dealing with. Nobody cares for my life. No, nobody understands what, what I'm going through. And he's writing this song. But my, what, what I love about this passage is that it helps me know that even when I'm in a cave, that, that doesn't mean that God is done with me. It doesn't mean that things are over. Even, even when I have sorrow, even when I feel alone, even when, even when I am facing something difficult, even when grief is my primary emotion right now, it doesn't mean that God has ended or finished or walked away or left me. Just because you're in a cave doesn't mean that God is done with you. And so if you're in a cave today, if you're, if you're in a cave today, it doesn't mean that, that, you, that it's over. Really, if you're not dead, God's not done. So if you're still breathing, God still has a purpose for you, still has a plan for your life. And a cave transforms stuff. Daniel was tossed into a cave. There was a bunch of lions down there. He went in praying for mercy, right? And he came out praising the faithfulness of God. Because you don't see the faithfulness of God on the mountaintop. That's where you get the promise of God. But you see the provision of God in the valley. You see the faithfulness of God to fulfill his promise in the valley. And so Daniel goes into a cave with a bunch of lions. And it's in the cave that he figures out that God is, in fact, able. And he comes out with a new song out of the cave. And I want to encourage some of you who might be in a time of grief, who might be in a time of a cave, and you might not have lost somebody, but you might still be in a time of sincere loss and grief and, and loneliness and complaints and trouble. If any of that stuff makes any sense to you, I want to encourage you that God is not done with you. He's just brought you into a cave to do something in you. He wants to take you into a cave because there's some stuff he can't get into you any other way. And, and it's good stuff. He wants his love and his grace to be flowing out of you. He wants a new revelation of his goodness and faithfulness in your life. He hasn't brought you there to, to because when you're in a cave, there's no exit. So, so sometimes we, we feel like, oh, I was, I was walking this direction. I can't walk this direction anymore. And that's actually the problem with sheep. Sheep have a real problem turning around. And God calls all his children sheep because we really struggle with that. And because we have a dream, we have a mission and we think this is it. And we go into the cave and we're like, that's where it's going to be. And then we hit a dead end wall. And yet in the cave, God doesn't necessarily want to bring us through the cave. He wants to bring something out of us in the cave. He wants for us to write a new song. And it might be a song of praise like, like Daniel. It might, it might be, I don't know, it might, God took Elijah into a cave. God, God's always, and, 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 and so as long as you're still breathing, I mean, God still has a plan for your life. And honestly, even if you're not breathing, if your name's Lazarus, God might still have a plan for your life in that cave. Like God can stand in front of a completely dead cave. I mean, a completely dead womb, a completely dead dream, a completely dead situation. And if he'll stand in front of your cave and call out your identity and call out your name, he's able to bring dead things back to life. So, you know, even if wherever, whatever level of cave you might be in, you might just have to give it three days. But at the end of that three days, something better is going to walk out than walked in. Something stronger, something greater, something more resilient, something more beautiful. And so it's amazing to me what God brings out of a cave. And that's what I want to see this month, is God bringing all kinds of stuff out of our caves. Out of our places of loneliness, out of our complaints, out of our trouble. 
Oftentimes when we're going through a hard time, we feel like that's when we need to stay away from God, stay away from church and all that kind of, <laughs> but, but that's the time when God wants to bring something out of you. He doesn't necessarily want to bring you out. He wants to bring something out of you. And it, what comes, the song, the lyrics, the sermon, the testimony, the job, the marriage that comes out of a cave. <laughs> it's amazing what comes out of caves. But it's also important what goes into caves. So there's two things I want to talk about just briefly with you. Two things that we bring into a cave. Uh, we bring truth and then we bring a lie. And I want to help you find the truth and grab it. And I want you to, I want to help you find the lie and leave it. Leave it in the cave. For David, for me, like I said, the most impactful verse of this entire thing is verse 4. If we could put that up on the screen, verse 4 is the verse that I don't know when I first read it, but whenever I read it, my, my heart said yes. I don't know if you've ever read something like that or seen a movie like that or heard a song like that, but it just, you, your heart says yes. Like something deeper than your head. Something that resonates, it just echoes with you. You say, that's me, that's, I, that, I get that. I know what he feels. And when I, when, I saw, when I saw this passage, that's when my heart said yes. It says, look and see, there's no one at my right hand. No one is concerned for me. I have no refuge. And so many times this passage has come to my mind. It's like the 30 days has September. It just comes to my mind. So many times I, I, I resonate with this. And, and I don't know if it's because I'm a melancholy personality. I don't know. <laughs> I, don't know. I don't know if it's good. But... It, it's just, there, there's some level of agreement, great agreement that I have with this passage. And when I read this, it just, it sticks with me. Now, I can never stay here. I always have to go on to verse five, but I think it's important to pause here and to acknowledge that God spent an entire chapter, actually several chapters in his book, but at least this entire chapter to acknowledge loneliness and this this is this is not uh, David being human this is not him lying this is not him being sometimes we read stuff like this and we're like oh David's just you know being human and no this is inspired by the Holy Spirit he wrote this down after some thought he didn't just spit this out on Facebook right? <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't post this uh, the next minute it came into his head by the way this is an acrostic poem so it takes a long time to actually write this so he had to go through exactly what he wanted to say exactly how he wanted to say it every single word was figured out because the spelling had to be exactly right so he is not just randomly posting stuff on his feed as he's feeling stuff this is reality for him he says look and see there's no one am I right nobody I can rely on no one who cares for me now you might have had a lot of people who loved you but it's one have people who love you is one thing but to have people that care for you to care for you means that they know what you need to be cared for and sometimes people who love you just don't have the knowledge or the brain power or the experience to know how to care for you I've always had people who loved me. I've been blessed with a family who loved me. I've been blessed with the church who loved me. I've been blessed with a wife and, and kids and lots of people love me, but not, but sometimes I say no one actually cares because nobody really knows what I need. And sometimes I don't even know how to express it. 
But I love this passage because it doesn't tell me I have to know. It doesn't tell me I have to hurry up and get past this. I have to hurry up and figure this stuff out. It simply just says the reality. And he, by the way, David brought this, this passage in there with him. David didn't, these weren't original lyrics in David's life. It wasn't when he was in this cave that he said, my goodness, I think, I think for the first time in my life, I'm completely alone. No, 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 not at all. Because the first time we meet David, the first time we read about David, it's because a prophet has showed up to his father's home and he talks to his father, his father's name is Jesse. And he says, man, God sent me here. One of your boys is gonna be king of Israel. And Jesse says, this is awesome. So Jesse calls all of his sons. Oh, no, wait, hold up, hold up. All of the ones that he thought could possibly be king. And he didn't accidentally leave David out because when, when Samuel asked him and he says, are these really all your boys? He says, well, there's, you know, David out there by himself with the sheep, but it's just David. David would have been about 10 years old at that time. And if you don't think that says something to you, then you've never had a dad who thought you would never amount to much. David knows what it is for no one to be concerned, to have no refuge. Isn't it interesting that the place where he went for shelter, the cave, he later calls a prison. He says, deliver me from this prison. Sometimes the stuff we run into because we think it's gonna provide refuge ends up becoming a prison. I want to talk about that in a few weeks, but the only difference between a prison and a refuge is one you don't want to leave and the other you can't. And he's stuck. And so David, David these lyrics aren't new to David. He, in fact, this cave probably wasn't new to him. This is where he used to tend his father's sheep. That's how he knew how to hide better than anybody else out there. He might have picked up an old song and said, I need to rewrite this because life just seems to keep circling back, doesn't it? Just the same thing. I keep ending up in the same place. I keep hearing the same message like a track playing around my life. And I'm 38, but I'm hearing the same thing I heard when I was 16. Just keep going around. There's a, there's a truth there, but there's also a lie there, which David does not express. He just simply holds on to the truth. But many of us have derived lies from these truths. The truth that maybe your dad didn't think you'd amount to much. The truth that maybe your family didn't understand you. The truth that maybe you were alone. The truth that maybe you've lost something. It's good to acknowledge those truths. You don't have to pull yourself up by bootstraps. You can, you can grieve, you can be sorrowful. It's okay not to be okay. Now I know in Texas you're told it's not, but <laughs> that's a lie. The truth is, it's okay not to be okay. It's okay to, if you see somebody who's grieving, don't try to help them stop it. That's when you say stupid stuff. Like, yo, I know what you're going through. What? How do you, anyway. <laughs> or it'll get better, or you'll get over it, or, well, now you don't have to worry about that. I mean, you know, like crazy stuff will come out of your mouth when you're trying to help people get over grief because it's crazy because you're not supposed to get over grief. Grief is supposed to produce something in you. Truth is what you need. So David holds on to the truth. He acknowledges the fact that he is all his life. He's been there. 
And sometimes, man, it starts. I'll just share a quick story and then we'll, we're going to be wrapping up. But I want to share a story from my life. It starts, it starts early. It's interesting. Uh, a while back, I was crying out to God and I was like, God, why do I feel this way? Why, do I, why does this keep coming up? And, and he reminded me in prayer of a story that my parents had told me. And so I called my mom uh, last night and made sure I got all the details right. I was a little off on the age. I thought I was nine months old. I was actually 14 months old. But I don't actually remember this. But I don't know if you know this or not, but there's, there's such a thing as pre-verbal memory. There's such a thing as memories that you don't, you don't have filed away up here. You have filed away down here. You have sensations. You have beliefs from before you were even conscious to actually remember your birthday or whatever. And so, I don't know, God brought this to me in prayer. And then uh, a week or so ago, we went to Kairos and she was, the lady was speaking about that early age and God brought it back to me. I said, I think God's trying to tell me something about this, this thing that my parents told me happened to me. I didn't, I don't have a physical memory of this, but uh, apparently I was, I was 14 months old and I got diarrhea. Um, diarrhea is, is not good um, at any age. Uh, it's really bad if you're incredibly young or incredibly old uh, because your, your, uh, your, your hydration, you lose all of your, your water in your body. It's just, it's going out the other end. <laughs> it's not to be gross, but I was a baby. I was 14 months old, I had diarrhea. So my mom, she was about 25. Um, I was the first kid, by the way. I'm the one they made all the mistakes on so that they could be better for Peter and for Sarah. Um, anyway, my mom takes me to the doctor, which is a great thing to do. And the doctor says, here's some Pedialyte. Just give him some of this and then, you know, he'll get over his, his diarrhea. He'll be fine. It's like extra hydration stuff. And so, you know, my, my mom, I guess she didn't read the bottle quite right, but she, she kept feeding me the Pedialyte. Like she was only supposed to give me like a two or three. So I'm, she feels terrible. She's watching right now, making her relive all of her mistakes, um, which is the joy of having children who end up pastoring. Uh, but she prayed for it. So I can't, I can't tell her it's not her fault. Uh, she prayed for me to pastor. But anyway, uh, I, I, I was, I was in, in, I was in, in I was taking in, she, like she wasn't feeding me anything else. She was just feeding me Pedialyte because she thought that that's what she's supposed to do. And so what the problem is that prolongs diarrhea. It keeps diarrhea going because you're getting this, this extra hydration. It's just coming out and just coming out. Coming. So for several days, I don't know how long, mom just said several. Um, several days, uh, I wasn't really fed anything and I was leaking everything out. And uh, they go, they took me to this family get together, and um, we actually have a picture of this. I didn't bring it today, but we have a picture uh, on my uh, on my computer of me at this family gathering crying, because that's what mom said. I was crying a lot. Um, she figured it was because I was hungry. And some of the family members said, little Harry doesn't look so good. And uh, mom's like, yeah, I know. I don't know what's going on. So she took me back to the doctor on Monday. That was Sunday. On Monday, she took me back to the doctor. And the doctor looked at me. And he said, you know, he's, his skin's all like, like he pushed on my thigh and it didn't bounce back out. Like it just went in. So he's like, he's severely dehydrated. So they rushed me to the hospital. And uh, they take me from mom and dad, which was very traumatic for mom. Mom was crying. And so they take me from mom. They put me on this board and they, they, uh, they wrap me up like where you put your arms by the side. And they just, you know, like, because they didn't want 
it's like swaddling, but it's a papoose. Yeah, it's a papoose. And, um, it's, and they wrap you up and then they stuck a needle in my forehead because that's the only way to get an IV uh, into a little baby, a 14 month old baby. You can't use the wrist and stuff. And so I'm screaming, I'm crying, I'm papoosed. I don't know if you've ever been papoosed, but man, it's not, it's about how it sounds. And uh, my, my parents aren't, they, they wouldn't allow parents back there. I'm by myself. They end, they end up bringing me out to this little nursery thing. And, but even then, like for three days, I was in the hospital with my, my, my wrist tied down to the side of the bed because they didn't want me to reach up and grab my, the needle and pull it out of my forehead. So I, I got a needle in my forehead and I'm strapped down for three days. And now, you know, poor baby, my, now, 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 like I said, I've always had parents who love me. My dad stayed there the whole time. He never left the room. He, he couldn't really hold me, but he never, he never left. But I think there's, I think that's partly why I can, I can understand having 400 guys crammed in a cave with you and still not able to do for you what you need. In fact, the people who are supposed to be looking after you, just their own ignorance of being 25 years old, they just didn't know. And when you're 12, 14 months old, you don't, you don't contextualize all that. All you do is you feel alone and in pain and weak and tied down, papoosed, can't move. And that's the truth. That's the truth. That's, that's the truth. There's all that's true. Now the lie that I've believed at times in my life is that I will always be alone. The lie that I've believed is that because there's no one at my right hand, then there's no one above me. And that's where David said, he said, let me tell you the truth. I am alone, so I will cry to the Lord. And that's why verse five has always spoken to me because I, I resonate with that because somewhere deep in my heart, I think many times I, I go back to that. I go back to that, that feeling. I can't, it's not a thought. I can't describe it. It's just a sense. And my parents always told me, man, they said, they said the good thing that came out of it, because they want to, they want to tell me the good thing that came out of it. Um, they said, the good thing that came out of it is after three days, when they came to pick me up, um, I had never walked before. I was a slow learner. Um, I was also dehydrated severely. No, just kidding. It wasn't their fault. I'm a slow learner. I, I'm slow in everything. And so I just had, I hadn't walked. I've been carried everywhere. I've been crawling, you know, it worked for me. And, and when they came to pick me up, mom was doing some paperwork and dad took me over to the corner where they had these toys and they had all those play school uh, uh, grocery carts, you know. And um, dad said that I, I crawled over to it. I reached up, I grabbed the, the grocery cart, pulled myself up, and for the first time ever started walking. Like, and if you've ever seen like a little baby learn how to walk, it's like, it's painful. Cause they're like concentrating that one foot and you get it and it goes forward. And then you're, you're like, you know, balancing, you concentrate the other foot. And dad was like so excited because he's like, you know, oh, little Harry learned how to walk. It's all he's walking, you know. So mom comes over, they're all excited. And, and I don't know, maybe that's why even to this day, if I feel, if I'm cornered, you'll see something rise up out of me that you haven't seen before. That if, I, if, there, if no one's going to pick me up, then I'm going to 
pick myself up. I'm going to fix this. I'm going to walk. If I'm stuck in a, if I'm stuck in a hospital and I'm strapped down, the minute you untie that strap, I am walking out of this place. Maybe I've never walked before, but I'm getting out of here. Okay, I'm going to deal with this. I'm going to fix this. See, most most kids learn how to walk by holding their parents' hand. I learned how to walk grabbing something plastic and said, I'll rely on this and I'll pull myself up, which, oh, yeah, that's the lie too. That in every cave, I have to pull myself up. That in every time of loneliness, I can't grab somebody's hand. Which, by the way, I don't know, was it 20 some years later, I came home, little Madden had been crawling all of her life and Rose says, Madden started walking today. I said, really, how did she walk? Well, she went up behind her little stroller thing and pulled herself up and started walking on it. I said, really, that's interesting. <laughs> so there's a, there's a truth and you gotta acknowledge it, but there's also a lie. You, there are people's hands that you can hold. You don't have to pull yourself up out of this. And just because, it was, it was so funny, that, 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 that thought was immediately reinforced because as soon as I learned how to walk, my parents scooped me up in their arms and I got to go home. So it's like, as soon as I get this lesson, as soon as I figure this out, as soon as I learn something new, then it's all gonna be over. It's so crazy how deeply this stuff gets embedded inside of you. David didn't do that. David didn't say, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pull myself up. I'm gonna walk out of here. I'm gonna feed these sheep until something happens. I'm gonna, no, he said, I will cry to the Lord. And that's what, that's what Jesus talked about in John 14. We have a scripture where John, uh, where, where Jesus is talking and he's talking about how he's gonna be leaving. And he says, but the comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things. You don't have to pull yourself up out of, out of your cave. The Father sends. He doesn't say, you, 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 you come walk. No, the Father will send. So what do you have to do? You have to receive the comforter. Would anybody like to receive the comforter today? I want to do something a little different. I want to have a time of prayer. And if you'd like to receive the comforter, would you raise your hand? Say, I need the comforter. I'm honest enough to recognize that I need the comforter. Just go ahead and put your hand up. Keep it up. There's no shame in that. This, this, I, I put my hand up. I need a comforter because the track that keeps playing in my head has some truth to it, but it's also, I've drawn some wrong conclusions. So if your hand's up and you're asking for the comforter, our ushers are now handing out a comforter. And it's not a joke. This, this is what I wanna to do today. For an altar call, if you wanna receive the comforter, I want us to hand you a comforter so that you can start to feel what I'm talking about, uh, we got one back there, one, it's a couple over there. Because that's when, when he says the comforter will come, which is the Holy Spirit. One there, one there. 
And if you're with a spouse or something, maybe share the comforter. Let's put it on our shoulder. Let's just, let's just put it up. I brought one from home. seen this done before. It's just a thought that I had. This is something that I think one of mom's relatives made for her on her wedding day. Back a thousand years ago. It's, it's, it's holding up. Just kidding. Uh, no, just, just to put that on your shoulder for a second and to feel that. Sometimes we think of God as this judge. We think of him as, I don't know, we got all these weird words for him, but the word that Jesus used was the comforter. And he will, he says, he will teach you all things. He'll teach you the song that he wants you to write in your cave. He will teach you the beauty in the ashes. He will teach you the joy in the morning first he'll just rest on your shoulder <laughs> he'll just create some warmth if the comforter was here physically and if he was holding the mic I think he would he would want you to know that you are loved that you have never been alone you have a refuge he'd want you to know that that the stuff that, that happened to you wasn't because of you we draw our own conclusions from this stuff sometimes it, it, it wasn't you Your mom had her own issues. Your dad had his own issues. It wasn't you. They were angry at other things. It wasn't because of you. Stuff that people have said to you, even that, you didn't draw it out of them. That was, that was something out there. The wonderful thing about a comforter is it, isol it, it, it insulates you without isolating you. This cold wind's blowing on you, but you have this, this comforter. The heat that you feel is just your own body heat. It's you. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. He, he covers us and he allows us to be us, the real version of us, the us we were created to be without the coldness of the particular room that we happen to be in or the particular family we happen to grow up in or the neighborhood that we were, the school that we were in or the situation that we were in. There's this insulating factor. I think he would want you to know that when he sees you, he doesn't see the room temperature, he sees you. And he wants to rest on your shoulder. He wants to keep you warm and he wants you to feel safe. Sometimes you haven't been able to grow much because you've never felt safe. And you won't grow where you don't feel safe. You won't be vulnerable where you don't feel safe. You won't confess where you don't feel safe. So the first thing the Holy Spirit does is he comes and he helps you feel safe. That this is a safe place to confess your sins. The stuff that really was you. 
this is a safe place to confess your bitterness. This is a safe place to confess your ugly attitude. This is a safe place. Because he comes on you before you have got rid of all that stuff. He's not afraid of getting his comforter dirty. <laughs> While the, the weight of the comforter is on your shoulders, he starts talking to you about all that stuff, where it started. Let's just do that for a minute. Why don't you ask God? I could, I could give a thousand examples, but why don't you ask God? Say, God, what? What truth do I need to admit? And what lie do I need to let go of? What truth have I been running from? It might be loneliness. It might be rejection. It, 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 it might be complaints, un, unmet expectations. It might be unrealized dreams. I don't know. But why don't you ask, where did it come from, Lord? When did I first start believing this? When did I come into agreement with something that's not from your word? And just let him bring stuff to your mind. Let him bring memories to your mind. And then do what verse 5 says, cry to the Lord. <laughs> Lord, you are my refuge. You are my safe place. You are my portion. Uh, that, that word portion, it means the, the allotted amount for the day. When David would have been a little boy, his mom would have made him a meal in the morning when it was still dark out. She would have given it to him for the whole day because he's not coming back. He's going to be out in the, the, the field. And that's what he says. That, that, that was his, quote, portion. This is going to keep you fed all day long. And that's what he says Jesus is. Jesus is my portion. Jesus is enough. He will keep me fed all of my life until I breathe my last breath until, and even then he'll meet me. He'll be the first face I see on the other side. <laughs> He's my allotted amount and he is enough. I'm not hungry for anything else. And so Lord, I pray that you would reveal that to us. Over this next month, Father, use, use this, this scripture, this passage to move us into a place where we accept the comforter, where we receive the warm embrace of a heavenly father who loves us and only wants good things for us, wants to remove all of our sin, wants to clean us, wants to change us, wants to give us joy. joy comes after the night in the cave. We look forward, Lord. We look forward to what you're going to do in our lives over this next month, this season. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.